2: Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and co-author of the forthcoming book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. I'm at home in Austin, Texas. And on today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Amira Rose Davis, an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University, who is in her house. Shreen Ahmed, a writer, public speaker, and sports activist in Toronto, physically distancing at home. Lindsey Lindsay Gibbs. The creator of Power Plays, a no-bullshit newsletter about sexism in sport that arrives right in your inbox three days a week. She's in D.C. in her apartment. And Dr. Brenda Elsie, an associate professor of history at Hofstra, co-author of the book Football Era. She's on Long Island, coming to us from her house. First things first. Our thoughts and thanks go out to all the people who are on the front lines of the continuing COVID-19 pandemic, the doctors, nurses, hospital staff, grocery store workers, delivery drivers, warehouse employees, factory workers, those who've fallen ill, people caring for their sick loved ones, those trying to keep their family members home. The list goes on. We are keeping all of you in our thoughts. As always, thank you to our patrons who support of this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign, Make Burn It All Down Possible. We are forever and always grateful. If you would like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com burnitalldown burn it all down. For as little as $2 per month, you can access exclusives like p- extra Patreon-only segments or our monthly behind-the-scenes vlog. On today's show, we're going to talk about problems with WNBA leadership. And Amira interviews Dr. Kathleen Baczynski, author of No Game for Boys to Play, The History of Youth Football and the Origins of a Public Health Crisis. They talk about her book and what it's like to research and teach sports and public health in the time of COVID. We'll cap off today's show by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout-outs to women who deserve shout-outs, and telling you what is good in our world. But first, before we get into all of that, let's, for a minute, imagine post-pandemic whenever that will be. So this week, it was announced that Wimbledon is canceled this year, and while that felt inevitable, I was still... Really sad about it. I've been watching Wimbledon since I was in high school, which was a very long time ago now. It's the tennis event that got me into tennis. I just love it. I feel like I mark my summer by it. So it's fair to say that of all the sports that I'm missing right now, I will be most excited to watch tennis again whenever we get to the point that it is safe enough to hold tournaments. But uh, this makes me wonder what sports you all will be most excited to watch once again or once we again can watch sports. Uh, Brenda, what about you? I imagine I know what it is. (laughs) Is I I imagine it's like one person in particular.
0: (laughs) It's not one person in particular. It's every person. It's like, um, you know, yeah, I mean, soccer. I mean, I'm most upset because for me, the eliminatorias are canceled. Those are the qualifiers for the 2022. And that's men's soccer. And that's what's on in South America right now. So there are ten teams in South American soccer. It's the probably hardest qualifying competition, and that means every team plays each other once at home. And I I was really excited. I was supposed to be there March twenty seventh. Also, you know, coordinating the monitoring for fair for homophobia and racism and gender violence, and I was so excited. So
2: yeah. Oh, how about you, Shereen? I -hmm. I assume it's. Similar. <laughs> it is. I mean, I'm missing
3: like s- football, obviously. And at a couple episodes, many episodes ago, Brenda had talked about the app Forza. And I was like, I got a new phone and I was like, I'm going to download this. But there's no point in downloading an app that talks about global football because there's no global football except for the men's final in Tajikistan. So I'm not really big on Tajikistanian football. So I'm just going to let that be. But yeah, I miss. I don't know. I was really geared up to watch the WNBA. I wanted to go see. I just, I don't know. I'm just sad and about it all. Yeah. Yeah. Lindsay?
1: Yeah. For me, it's the, I mean, Wimbledon is gutting, but so much of my life revolves around women's basketball now that honestly, like having the fact that I wasn't at the final four this weekend, <laughs> you know, it's just oh, been that's so right. hard. And, oh, yeah. oh my
2: God. Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> and, blah, 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 blah.
1: and then, <laughs> you know, the fact that the WNBA season is now being postponed, and I don't have much hope that we're going to have it at all. I mean, that's just kind of where I am right now. Mentally really? All this, Not at all.
2: Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I doubt it too.
1: I really doubt we'll see sports. I mean, for it, would, honestly, 2020, it's going to be surprising. <laughs> <laughs> Amira, <laughs> this is supposed to be my happy place. <laughs> Where we don't mention him. But anyway, so I yeah, but for me it's the like I cannot wait to see women's basketball again. Like I am yeah. so ready to yeah. see
2: some women's basketball again. Yeah.
4: How
2: about you, Amira?
4: Yeah, I mean, as much as I'm, you know, hypercritical of the Olympics, I also fucking yeah. love the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. And so Olympic years make me incredibly happy. And I love the new technology that even when the Olympics are in different time zones, it just like live streams all the events. And for insomniacs like me, it's like ideal yes. because it means that I'm like up at three in the morning watching live fencing or judo or whatever. It's like around the clock sports. Um I get so into random things every four years. And so I'm missing that. All
2: right. So July, 2021.
4: Okay. (laughs) July 23rd, (laughs) 2021. It may or may not be on my calendar. Uh,
2: Well, one day we will get there one day. All right. And now onto the show. All right, Lindsay, talk to us about problems with WNBA leadership. Yeah, so there's a few few stories. I like the the laugh
1: (laughs) happening in the news right now. The first one we want to talk about happened actually in early March, but I can't imagine why it didn't really (laughs) uh, register much in the news, probably because everyone's brain is completely broken and maybe irreparably broken. But anyways, earlier in March – really explosive allegations came out of a Los Angeles County court that the former and longtime general manager of the Los Angeles Sparks, Penny Toller filed 10 count civil lawsuit against the Sparks, former team president, Christine Simmons and 50 other unnamed individuals. Want to shout out to Kelsey trainer from high post hoops, because most of the summary I'm giving of the case stems directly from her. Um, but the last we heard from Toller was when she was fired in October 2019, uh, pretty abruptly for allegedly using a racial slur at her players. Now Penny Toller is a black woman, to be clear, but she has now come back with this lawsuit, and she's alleging that her firing said was a result of gender discrimination and retaliation for speaking out against an extremist extramarital relationship between the former team president Christine Simmons and team managing partner and governor Eric Holloman. She also said that, well, this head coach was not named in the suit. He was put in the lawsuit. It, he was anonymous and it said that he was the head coach from 2015 to 2018. But that means it so was current. Not anonymous. Dallas <laughs> Wings head coach Brian Ackler because it's pretty easy to figure out who head coaches are. So the lawsuit says that he used offensive language and engaged in a relationship with a player and that, you know, there was uh, sexual harassment involved and that some players were so comfortable that they left and have since returned um to the team now that Brian Agler is gone. So this is a lot. <laughs> I mean, the crux of the lawsuit is around money. Toller said that she her lost her contract began in April, 2017 was, was set to expire in March of 2020. And that there were only three clauses that allowed for her to be fired. And none of them were just because they kind of felt like it, like there was, you know, um, which seems to have been, you know, she doesn't think that her firing was for cause. So she's trying to get six more months of pay from them. But obviously there's a lot more to this suit, including, um, you know, sexual, so, you know, some some sexually inappropriate things from people that are still working in the WNBA. And it's troubling all around. I think this is hard to talk about. And I also think
2: we need to talk about it. So uh, I'm curious to know what you all think. Yeah, I mean, it all, as I was reading up on um, what Kelsey Trainer wrote, and then um, what Erica Ayala wrote at The Athletic, everything in the Toller case, seems totally plausible to me. None of this seems out of the realm of possibility, certainly. Uh, I don't know enough about Agler. I mean, I just kind of know his coaching, you know, bona fide, but I don't really know him as a person or anything about him. So I don't have any way, but that all sounds totally plausible to me. You know, as the journalist in me hopes that the lawsuit makes it to discovery, this is the point in the process where both sides have to like turn over a ton of documentation or do depositions, right? So we would maybe get to hear from the players that she's talking about that left and came back that we might get a lot more concrete information about what went down in L.A. I would like to know all of that stuff, especially because... Hagler is still there. I think Holman is still at, with the with the Sparks. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. It all makes sense to me. Lindsay? <laughs> I agree. I want this to go forward. I think it's
1: important to talk about. I mean, Penny Toller is um, a legend. I think, you know, what's clear is that there is – a lot of messiness behind the scenes and the sparks, and I think, you know, this is something we'll continue to talk about, but there's a lot of messiness behind the scenes in all pro sports, and that includes women's sports, right? Like, there's a lot of corruption, a lot of scandal behind the scenes, and women's sports are not exempt
2: from that, right? Just because... Can I ask you, like, why isn't it bigger news? Like, why why is it because of covid like it just isn't big enough news to sort of break through or is there something i think it's really tough i think it's you know there's a combination of things number
1: one it's uncomfortable to talk about right like there's a lot of explosive allegations in here that don't really necessarily seem like they tie like she's You know, and you do this when you file a lawsuit, right? You throw a bunch of stuff kind of against the wall to see what will stick for reasoning, you know? But it's like the the stuff she's alleging about workplace con- misconduct isn't the main point of her suit you know so I think that makes it all a little tough to talk about it also involves legends of the game I mean Candace Parker you know a lot of this is she's saying retaliation because she was trying to trade Candace Parker at one point and Candace Parker was really close friends with Christine Simmons um, who of course is the one having the extramarital affair so it's just like it's a lot I think it's tough you know Brian Agler is Respected and for you know, for the most part, I think, but also there seem to be. I mean, I think inappropriate relationships between coaches and players in women's sports is not a new allegation, right? Whether it be men or women and in you know, positions of power, like this is this happens and nobody's figured out really how to talk about it, and so I just think there's so much here, and then of course, Toller was fired for you know, part of where she was fired was we're saying the N word and players came out, you know, players did talk on the record that that made them feel or anonymously, but, um, you know, that said that that did make them feel uncomfortable. And there were legitimate complaints about that. So although we, of course, know the dynamics are very different as to is, you know, if it was said by a white person. So it's a lot. And I think that's part of it. And then, you know, I think this all – also, like, the suit did break the week that, you know, the NBA was canceled and, you know, the COVID really took over everything. So, I think that's another reason, but it's why I thought it was important to revisit it. So, another thing going on <laughs> that is Kelly Leffler, who was my Burn Pile nominee a few weeks ago. Yeah, like,
2: burn. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah. She's back. <laughs> but this time – so, basically, she is the co-owner of the Atlanta Dream, and she was – uh, appointed um, as a new a senator in a Republican senator from Georgia last year. It's a little bit complicated, but basically, like you know, they had someone step down, and there's so there wasn't she, she, There will be a special election for her seat this fall, but she hasn't actually been elected. But she was appointed by the governor to be the senator, and she's the uh, the um, co-owner of the Atlanta Dream, and recently it's come out. And a lot of this is from uh, another friend of the show, Caitlin Burns at Vox that Kelly Loeffler benefited from stock trades worth millions of dollars shortly before the uh, general public was alerted to the severity of the COVID-19 crisis, selling off shares uh, in industries that had been adversely affected by the coronavirus pandemic and buying shares of companies that have benefited. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, she sits on the Senate health committee. (laughs) And she first uh began selling stocks on January 24th, which was the same day that the committee held a private all-member session on COVID-19.
2: And coincidence. she, she
1: coincidence, coincidence and she continued totally. making trades in late February and early March. And according to her latest financial disclosure, uh her largest transaction involved a sale of $18.7 million in intercontinental exchange stock in three separate deals. And since Leffler has made her sale, the stock has fallen by 16%. So these are fairly serious allegations, and the reporting on them is ongoing. And the reason, though, that we are talking about, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this week is because uh, none of her for- none of the dream players have spoken out against that and against her and we can get into all the dynamics there but angel mccautry who was with the dream for 10 years she was drafted there and you know the face of the franchise for 10 years and then left this off season in free agency to go to the las vegas aces so this is what angel wrote on twitter this year it says my quote to the papers which i just love on uh, kelly Leffler. i love kelly has done nothing but give 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 she has helped us women continue to maintain a job even when she has made nothing in return kelly has always had my back when i needed her and she would have yours too i will never judge a person on their political views that's what makes the world unique we get so caught up on what's going wrong i remember the million things kelly has done right so that is angel's quote and i just thought we should kind of uh, talk about it i think you all might have some thoughts <laughs>
3: Uh Shireen, do you have any thoughts? I had a really hard time getting past the like that part of the the tweet where she said that's what makes the world unique. What the fuck? Like n- I will never judge a person on their political views. What? I just I'm so mad. I feel like this is a very gentle segue into a burn pile. But I I think for me, she's a good person, or she was nice to me. It's not a fucking defense. This woman has literally, literally committed a crime, one of like the most heinous type of white-collar crimes in the US, for which she will probably remain unpunished. But then again, like I feel really bad saying this because like I'm a big fan of Martha and Snoop. But Martha Stewart went to jail for doing much less in terms of money. And it's equally egregious, but like I just it's terrible here and this is a woman that's being being lauded for supporting women in sports first of all she's a fucking xenophobe a homophobe and a trump supporter like i just i find it so disappointing i don't expect women athletes to have the same opinion as me on anything. I will never expect that, but it's so disappointing and like a stab to the heart when I see stuff like this. So I just I mean I have a bunch of feelings and I know you all have thoughts too. I just I was mortified and so deeply disappointed by Angel's reply.
2: Yeah, it was a it was interesting cuz she posted this and then all these people responded immediately about the insider training, trading, and she then tweeted Tell me more about this, which so is like such an indication <laughs> that she didn't even understand sort of the basic context of why the papers were asking her. The and I felt like that was. Papers, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. But it was just so interesting to me because it, it was a good reminder on some level that a lot of people don't live on Twitter and don't follow the news that closely. Yeah, yeah. This is a little different to me because she was literally being asked for something. Like she should have at least asked for the context of this. But It was a reminder that that's true in a lot of ways. And then I also just kind of feel like, you know, we talk about this a lot on the show, but that female athletes in particular are just always grateful for anyone helping them out, that that's sort of the framework with which they approach stuff. And it felt like that to me as well. Amira?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think piggybacking off of that point, I mean, I, I really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate the work you do, especially on these topics, Lindsay. Um, And one of the reasons why I feel like it's so hard for critical conversations around the W to get traction, sometimes where we don't see this and, and people are so protective of it, is because we're dealing with like two particular complications. One, the league has very much positioned itself and leaned into woke branding. I um, mean, we've talked about this before on the show, the ways in which the kind of positionality of the league um, has obscured other ways in which there's power dynamic issues or issues that we're, you know, hypercritical of in any other space, or, you know, at the same time that they're releasing a video that's applauding activism, you know, who they're choosing to partner with shows a kind of limited vision of that. So the branding here really allied some of the other very familiar kind of tensions and, and uh, critical issues about ownership and, and labor concerns that sometimes get lost behind that messaging. And the other thing, of course, is that the vultures are always circling. You cannot even post a single thing about the WNBA without all of the flood of, you know, kitchen comments and no one cares, et cetera, et cetera. And it's engaging in, in, in history when we talk about Black women who have historically, like, Downplayed the sexual abuse in particular, otherwise treatment that they receive from at the hands of black men. Uh, historians use the term culture of dissemblance, where they're saying they, they keep it in as to not contribute to existing stereotypes or existing kind of harm that could befall black men. So they always kind of comport themselves to be the shields of that. And I feel like sometimes, um, we who care about women's basketball tend to do that around the WNBA as well um, because we're so hyper aware of the vulture circling. And so what it results in is that we do have these conversations, but with each other or a little less publicly, or if it is publicly, it very quickly turns into a defense because even if you post a critical thing, the next person is going to say, Oh, who cares, or whatever. And I saw freaking what's his awful <laughs> name? What's his name? He's so awful. Okay. Oh. Jason Whitlock. There you go. <laughs> I was like, I was thinking, Yeah, no, <laughs> okay, he's particularly I was, awful, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, and Jason tweeted about the WNBA holding its draft and he was like are we going to talk about this you guys say nothing about this but you know the NFL is always the bad guy and it was clearly just a straw man set up to shit on the WNBA both by him and and in the comments but it also points to the fact that like people doing the work and people who are caring are always already having these conversations but it seems like it exists completely out of these other larger discussions, and so I think that's one of the things that's really tricky about these these conversations. But they're so yeah. necessary.
2: Thanks, Amira, Brenda. Yeah, I mean,
0: uh, this is just a also I think reflective of some of this ongoing tension between women's sports and and having uh, hopes for feminism and representation. So there's this real tension that always exists in these situations where women, you want, you know, that inclusion changes conversations and images and does something. And so, you know, it's important to include women. That's not the same as including a feminist agenda. To have a woman owner of a WNBA team, there wasn't any doubt that Loeffler was like progressive or feminist. She's anti-feminist. And so there's this tension where, you know, women are part of the very same patriarchy as men and they do a lot to uphold it. And we've talked a lot about that on the show. And I just think that's always going to be a tension. And then you know, those are the things, the very things that men like, what's his stupid ass's name? What's his name? <laughs> Whitlock.
3: <laughs> Whitlock. Whatever.
2: Are we still on Whitlock? What? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Still-
0: like, like people like that will sort of, will will jump on that in a very, you know, as Amira said, straw man argument and also very sort of just basic be- because because there is that tension and we all know it and we all acknowledge it, but it makes the conversation really difficult. Because it is important to have women owners, it is important to have women coaches. But you know, Toler, her her suit is not only about a male coach, but about the behavior of another woman. And and that becomes really difficult. So it's like navigating that who's a feminist and who is an inclusive woman representing. And those are just often not the same things. And we want them to be. And it's
2: hard. Yeah, such a good point. Lindsay? Yeah, I mean, it's really
1: hard. And to make it, you know, to take it even a step further, like, Christine Simmons and Penny Toller were two of the most pl- powerful black women in the WNBA, you know, and so that's another layer to this, because there we know there aren't nearly enough uh black women in positions of power in the WNBA, despite the fact that the majority of the players are black women. So yeah, I think it's all tough to talk about. And but I do think it's crucial that you know, spaces like this. And, you know, I know with all of our work that we continue to look critically and, and police our own communities in a way, you know, and make sure that power corrupts everyone right like power and money and these systems can corrupt everyone and and pretty much everyone's immune nobody's completely immune to it and i just think it's so important to keep shining a light on these problems because this is a place where i think you know the power structures within women's sports deserve the same scrutiny that the power structures within men's sports do, because we need, you know, we need to root out corruption, um, everywhere. And because ultimately it's not in the best interest of the players. And I, I feel for players on, um, the sparks and the dream right now. I understand why nobody is speaking out, but I don't think, and I don't, you know, I'm not like mad at any of them for not speaking out, but I do think like as journalists, as, you know, voices in this community, it's up to us to, to speak out and to analyze these things and to not just plug our ears and pretend they're not happening.
2: Up next, Amira interviews Dr. Kathleen Bachinski, author of No Game for Boys to Play, the history of youth football and the origins of a public health crisis.
4: Hey, flamethrowers, and welcome to the latest Scholar Spotlight. I am so thrilled to be joined um, by Dr. Kathleen Byshynski from Muhlenberg College right here in Pennsylvania, right near me. She is the assistant professor of public health um, in their public health program there. And I was thrilled to call her up and chat with her about her new book called No Game for Boys to Play, The History of Youth Football in the Origins of a Public Health Crisis. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me oh, I'm so thrilled. I was so excited to get my hands on your book. And I have all these questions. First and foremost, congratulations on the book coming out. And immediately I was like, oh, so you mean all these debates and all of these moments that we've seen in the last few years where people are lamenting the softening of of manhood in the country by pointing at new rules and um, anxieties around youth football is not actually new. <laughs> so, I I wanted to start there. You give a very compelling history of these debates around youth football. Um, how did you come to this topic?
5: Well, it was a long process, but the short version is I used to play soccer and I ripped my ACL doing that, which is a big knee injury. So, when I went into public health, I was really fascinated by studying the history of injuries, the social context of injuries, how we think about risk. Uh, and when it came time to come up with a topic for my dissertation, I thought, well, if I'm going to do something related to brain injuries, if it's going to be a big project, it's going to have to be football because it is so socially and culturally important in the United States, one of our most prominent sports. And it also is incredibly prominent at the youth level. Um, It's still the most popular sport for high school boys, which means from a public health point of view, there's a very significant population at risk. There's millions of boys who play every year. So at the time, when I first started working on this, there was a lot more attention at the NFL level, which made sense because there was the NFL concussion lawsuit. There were very prominent NFL players in the news who had passed away and who had been diagnosed PTE, after death, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. There's a lot of attention on the NFL level, but I thought if I'm, if I'm looking at a public health history, I really want to look at the kids. I think that's where it's at because way more kids play football than adults. It's really a child's sport. And I would, in fact, say in the realm of 95 to 98% of football players in the United States are children. The vast majority don't make it to to playing college in the NFL, and we don't have leagues of forty and fifty year olds tackling one another. So I wanted to understand where this all came from, and just as you said, I found that these debates are actually really old from the very inception of the sport. There were people who took a look at it and said, "This is really dangerous." and in fact, I took the title from the Journal of the American Medical Association because back in nineteen oh seven. The doctors who wrote for that journal wrote an editorial in which they said, "Well, you know, at the college level, they're adults. Maybe they can make a, their own decision." And we know that the NCAA is going to try to to make things safer. It wasn't called the NCAA at the time, but the the new association that had just been founded, which we now know as the NCAA to oversee college sports, was founded in large part to try to address injuries in football. So the, the doctor said, we might, we might be okay with college football, but there need be no such hesitation in saying that this is no game for boys to play. And that just really struck me that over 100 years ago, uh, one of our most prominent medical journals was, was saying kids should not be playing the sport. Needless to say, they largely got ignored. And instead, way more kids started playing the sport. And it became this incredibly popular sport for children. And I wanted to understand how that came about.
4: Yeah, you know, it's so compelling. And I really appreciate the focus on youth sport here, because it's one of the understudied and undercovered kind of phenomenons in this country. You have this really compelling line in the book, um, where you describe millions of boys colliding on the gridiron. And you say, every hit also reveals social and cultural values. Each collision says something about what Americans expect of their sons and the men they hope they will become. And certainly a large part of this and a large part of your work also deals with the gendered kind of notions embedded in the sport of football. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that, about why um, you know we're so infatuated with football and what are those things that people think boys are gaining on the field?
5: That's such a good question. And it's a really fascinating history because I think throughout its history, tackle football has been seen as the domain or the province of men. Um, And in many ways, it was sort of a way of saying, here's a part of life, even as women are sort of getting additional, girls and women are getting additional rights and access to other parts of American life. Here is a sport that can be by and for men and boys. In the late 19th century, there was the beginnings, obviously, of the suffrage movement that in, ultimately led to women gaining the right to vote in in 1920 and other advances in women's access to public life. And that's where football got its start. And it also was very deeply associated with the military when it got its start. It was seen as, in many ways, an alternative to military military training for boys. So there was a movement in the United States, and the Spanish-American War certainly highlighted this, uh, an effort to make the United States uh, a more global power at the end of the 19th and into the 20th century. And football became very closely tied to military and educational leaders who said this will be a really great way to train up boys, to teach them discipline and toughness, and other qualities that we think they'll need as potential future soldiers, future military leaders, or even potential business leaders. So it got tied to this whole set of values. And I think we still see those military associations today. But it's, it's worth highlighting, for example, uh, President Eisenhower uh, played football at West Point when he was a, a cadet, a student at West Point. Many other prominent American generals and politicians, other leaders ended up playing football. Um, And it it was, in many ways, most prominent at that time at Harvard and Yale. So it was a way of of sort of training up what were seen as the elite of the elite at the time, which were largely at the time, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, more affluent men who could afford to attend a college like Harvard or Yale. And football was seen as sort of a proving ground for them. So what ends up happening, and this is obviously many years of history, I'm I'm condensing into a short time, but what ends up happening is that as football moves away from Harvard and Yale to to many other colleges and down into high schools, it gets treated as this is a way to impart these very desirable social values, the phrase character building, which has all kinds of uh, notions, gendered and otherwise built into it, discipline, teamwork, all those values kind of get put onto football. And I think in many ways, the idea of of toughness and being able to quote unquote, play through it, uh, to play through pain is very much part of that as well. So football was sort of seen as a way of teaching boys. And this is a a direct quote from a 1950s article that it quote, does not hurt to get hurt. That it actually in some sense is a good thing to experience a certain amount of pain and to, to learn to play through an injury. So I think those ideas were tied to football from its origins.
4: Wow. Yeah, and and one of the things you kind of touched on even in talking about that is the way race is bound up within this. Um, I was really particularly interested in a part of the book where you talked about how particularly for Black boys, football offers um, a place where they can play um, in a sanctioned, supervised way that perhaps reduces... Occurrences like, say, Tamir Rice, or the kind of threat of black boys at play in unsupervised spaces, but also that it works to solidify and and amplify these stereotypes about male aggressiveness, um, which is acceptable on the field. Um, and I was really interested about what you think happens you know when they transition off the field one of the things that has always stuck out to me is we were um at this function with Michael Bennett and he said we're taught to to be ruthless and and physical and aggressive on the field so much that nobody ever teaches us how to turn it off when we go home. And I'm particularly interested in in that piece of the conversation. And then certainly when we fast forward to our contemporary times, just looking at the racial politics of the league and the disproportionate kind of labor force who's playing. And um, I think these conversations were heightened by when people like Andrew Luck walk away from the game, um, and and those players who are disproportionately left within the sport, at least the professional level, the collegiate level, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the youth level as well, there's kind of racial disproportions in terms of who's playing and who's coaching and who's owning these spaces.
5: Well, those are all such good questions. I guess to, to start off, I would definitely say one of the themes or threads I saw running throughout is that because football was treated as these are in many ways the ultimate American male values uh, for those men, particularly of races uh, that were marginalized or discriminated against, football kind of became a way to prove that I am an American man too. And I think we really see a big change after the 1950s and 60s when schools integrated, there was a much bigger influx of African American players, certainly beginning in the 70s and 80s as compared to the 50s and 60s, because they began to have access to you know be able to play on, on college teams and, and ultimately in the NFL as well, in the way they didn't before that. And I think you're spot on about the idea that obviously many sports are in some sense, a sort of socially sanctioned kind of violence. But I think we really see that with football, given that it is a collision sport with repeated hits. And what ends up happening because of social stereotypes and discrimination and beliefs based on race is that you start to see Black players disproportionately represented in those positions that deliver and receive the most hits. Whereas positions such as quarterback or kicker, which are positions in football that tend to experience fewer kicks or fewer hits, excuse excuse me, the the kicker obviously is much less likely to to be in a collision. And there are actually many rules that specifically protect the quarterback. Those positions are disproportionately occupied by white players. So you you see even the, the specific public health risk in the sport becomes racialized and the the players who are in many senses taking on the most intense physical risks are increasingly African American players and then the point about this being socially sanctioned violence i think is especially important for African American boys and men because as i had alluded to in the book there there have been horrible instances um, in in both past and much more recent US history of black boys and men being viewed as with intense suspicion and suffering intense violence, Tamir Rice being one example of a young boy playing alone in a park. And it really struck me, you know, Tamir Rice was just playing with a toy, toy gun alone, but was perceived as a threat. On the other hand, had he been in a football uniform colliding with other players, he would not have been seen as a threat in the same way because he would have been seen as having you know, participated in a, violent, a form of violence that's seen as appropriate and, and socially approved. And I think it's a way I, that very understandably many parents who are concerned about what opportunities or options are available to their ch- children might say, sure, we know that uh, football carries significant risks, but my son is safer in many ways, socially and physically playing football, then perhaps he might be you know, playing in, in the park on his own. I think we see now, and it's absolutely across all levels of football, although we don't have as good data at the younger age group, but we certainly have good data at the college and NFL level, uh, increasing disproportionate uh, representation of black men on NCAA teams, as well as in the NFL. And so I also think that that has very profound implications for how we think about the risks of football, the physical risks, certainly the the risks to the brain, as well as the other kinds of bodily injuries players can suffer and sort of who's experiencing those risks versus who's benefiting or profiting from them. And it seems clear to me that Black players are disproportionately experiencing the physical risks of the sport and that the white, disproportionately white owners and coaches of the teams are disproportionately benefiting financially from it.
4: Yeah, wow. So where are we now with discussions of football, particularly youth football and public health and CTE? Um, What is the kind of latest space that you see these conversations occurring and what are the consequences?
5: I think what I see developing now are roughly two main schools of thought. And one is, and I think this is driven in many ways by the NFL, uh, coaches, other people involved in the sport, certainly a recognition that there are brain injuries and and long-term risks such as CTE that need to be addressed. But the idea seems to be that we can just kind of tweak parts of the sport to address those concerns, but not make any fundamental changes. So what I mean by that is that a lot of the attention has been on things like Changing helmet design, or tweaking uh, some of the rules, or tweaking the the tackling technique, things of that nature. So not fundamentally changing the nature of the sport, but saying, okay, we we're, we're conceding that we are we know that there are these significant concussion risks, but the way we're going to address that is by building a new and, and better helmet, or otherwise tweaking the technology or the rules. The other school of thought, which is certainly the school of thought that I adhere to is that repeated full body collisions just carry fundamental risks to the human brain. And we don't have any kind of helmet or tackling technique that can minimize to a significant extent those risks. The, the laws of physics, unfortunately, I think mean that there just really is no safe way to repeatedly collide with another person and not put your brain at risk of repeated trauma. So that school of thought is basically that because there are these fundamental inherent risks, at a minimum, young children should not be exposed to those risks and that we should be offering non-collision alternatives. So that could be flag football, that could be a different sport, but some kind of version of football that doesn't involve tackling. So I think we're at a very interesting crossroads right now. And I think there's a, a tension between those two perspectives of, is it possible for our, you know, in many ways, our national pastime to be able to continue on without much change? Or are we going to have to make fundamental changes to the sport, or at least decisions about at what age you can start playing the sport in the name of public health? And I think we certainly haven't resolved that. And I think it's going to depend not just on the science although that's certainly very important, the new imaging and scientific advancements we've made in studying the brain, I think it's also going to depend just as much, if not more, on our attitudes towards gender and manhood and whether or not football is sort of necessary to turn boys into men, whether tackling is an essential part of that. All these profound social and cultural attitudes, I think, are going to be very important in determining the future of the sport
4: Yes, indeed. Now, I would be remiss to not not ask you a question about the current moment that we're seeing, given that you're a scholar that focuses on both sports and public health. Um, What I don't even know how to articulate the world that COVID nineteen has created, and I didn't know if you had any kind of thoughts about this particular public health crisis's impact on the sports world or otherwise.
5: Absolutely. Well, my first thought is a lot of gratitude to the NBA. Um, I think they were real leaders in many ways on this. Um, you may remember that the NBA was one of the first professional leagues, and this might, it feels like months ago now, but it was, it was only a couple weeks ago, to say, you know, we actually are going to have to, uh, you know, suspend games for right now. And I think that came at a very important moment that started to spur other sports leagues to take this seriously. Obviously, now, as we speak, only a couple days ago, it was announced that the Olympics are going to be postponed. And I think that's all, you know, as unfortunate as as it is for all of us who love watching sports, I think that is the necessary and right call in the name of public health, not just to protect the fans, but to protect the players themselves. I have a number of students who, who play college sports. And there was a a moment, and you may remember this as well, where there was a thought of, well, perhaps we can have some games where there are the players playing, but no audience there as one sort of effort at having some kind of compromise situation. But I think the nature of this virus and how it spreads means that in order to protect the athletes, they themselves should not be traveling and playing either, and in speaking about that with my students, um, many of whom are, you know, in their late teens or early twenties, and obviously many of them may be thinking, "Well, I'm at a lower risk for complications from the virus." Even if you are in a younger age group, you still are at risk for the virus, and more so. The concern is we want to protect our health system capacity, and that means if you have any kind of medical issue. And there are obviously lots of medical issues you can have playing sports, reasons you might need to go to the emergency room, injuries that can happen. We need to protect our emergency room capacity right now for our healthcare providers and first responders to be devoting their time, their energy, their personal protective equipment, all their resources to addressing COVID-19. So as unfortunate as it is, I think it really was the right call. i Again, I'm so grateful to the NBA for sort of modeling this, and I'm grateful that the NCAA and the IOC and other organizations have been following suit and saying, we have to postpone right now.
4: Certainly. well. We thank you in the midst of all this for joining us on Burn It All Down. Flamethrowers, please go check out the book, No Game for Boys to Play. It's available at uncpress.org, which right now is having a 40% off sale on its recent American History catalog, which includes this book. Um, Go stock up on reading materials for your isolation and your social distancing. The book is also widely available, so you can also support local bookstores that might have it in stock. Um, when you're looking for it and again thank you so much for joining us here on burn it all down
5: thanks so much it was an absolute
2: pleasure now we are on to everyone's favorite segment the burn pile where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and we set them aflame brenda what is on your burn pile I am representing, I think, most of us and several episodes worth of building when
0: I want to burn the two anti-trans bills that um, passed. They were signed into law by Governor Little, this moment very aptly named. And the the two bills are HB 500 and HB 509. Those mean, one, no changes to birth certificates. To change one's gender, and a second that ban trans girls from competing in girls' sports. And Lindsay's, you know, discussed this extensively on last week's episode, so I don't think I need to get into it too deeply. But to say, a friend of the show, Caitlin Burns, also wrote about this for Fox and did a whole breakdown of the trends that have been happening. And there are eight states right now that have different anti-trans bills that are there, that are in the process, they're introduced, and there are such things as like, you know, making it a felony for any medical professional to treat youth with gender dysphoria. Again, you know, choosing this moment, a pandemic to pick on the most vulnerable of the population. There's a lot to be said of why it's even girls and girls' sports, and how even if you're like sexist and misogynist, that that's just one step further, even. (laughs) Because what does that mean? They can't even imagine that trans boys would compete in boys' sports. Anyway, whatever. There's a whole ton to work out there, but I think it's worth just. Burning it, burning that he passed it in there, just knowing it will be an expensive lawsuit and knowing that you are making the world a worse place, um, a more bigoted place. So burn. 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 Burn.
2: So on March 31st, which feels like six years ago, but was in fact last Tuesday, I'm told, Mike Florio wrote a piece for Pro Football Talk titled, NFL is planning for a full season with full stadiums. In the piece, Florio writes, quote, during a conference call with reporters held on Tuesday, NFL General Counsel Jeff Pash said the league is planning for a full season. Pash also believes apparently that the season will start on time and that games will be played in front of full stadiums of fans. I just, what? I mean, so the NFL season is supposed to start on September 10th. That's after weeks of preseason games and months of camps. The IOC, which swore up and down and on everyone's grave that they would hold the Olympics in July and August this summer, has moved that to 2021. At this point, it's still not clear if we'll get any more NBA or any part of the WNBA season. There's no indication of when tennis will return or hockey. There's just so much that is unsettled, and we still know so little about the virus that is tearing its way through so much of the world right now. It seems premature, to say the least, to be out there saying so assuredly that anything definitive will be happening on September 10th, especially gatherings of tens of thousands of people in the same place. But you know how I really know that this is a dumb idea for the NFL to be putting out there? (laughs) And Amira, Amira mentioned this at the top of the show. I know this because on Saturday, Donald Trump, who has been wrong about Everything to do with (laughs) COVID-19 said he believes the NFL season should start on time in September and he hopes to have stadiums and arenas full of fans by late summer. Trump is like opposite day personified. Whatever he says, think or do the opposite and you'll be on firmer, more correct ground. Sorry, NFL. So anyway, as Brenda said on the show a few weeks back, it doesn't really matter what the people who run these leagues want and it ultimately won't matter what Trump says either. It'll be mayors and governors deciding for their local jurisdictions, and they might very well keep teams from playing and certainly fans from congregating. The virus, our ability to test people, something that is still not happening at the level or with the speed officials want it to, and a possible vaccination or treatment for it will determine the schedule. There's just something so cavalier and arrogant in this moment, especially here in the United States as all the numbers continue to rise, uh, about someone in the NFL getting on a call with reporters And claiming full stadiums in September when so many people are just literally trying to survive right now. So I want to burn it. Burn.
0: Burn.
2: Lindsay, what are you burning?
1: I'm burning any single news report about the Hall of Fame inductions that we will mention our best one of the week that does not include Tamika Catchings in the headline or the lead <laughs> or whatever. Obviously, there's some other big names: Tim Duncan and uh, Kobe Bryant and uh, Kevin Garnett. But Tamika Catchings deserves to be right there with the top with Kobe and with um Tim. Absolutely, no question about it. And for so many uh headlines, I see she is an afterthought. She is the other. She is the etc. in the uh conversation. And it just it's just a reminder of how few women are even in uh not only the basketball hall of fame, but in any of these big sports hall of fames and how their inclusion is so often treated as a Act of generosity and not <laughs> as an earned um, state. Let's just go over Tamika Catching's bio very quickly. 15 years in the WNBA, all for the Indiana Fever, a WNBA championship, most valuable player award, finals MVP award five WNBA Defensive Player of the Year awards, four Olympic gold medals, and the WNBA Rookie of the Year award, um, 12 W All-WNBA teams, 10 WNBA All-Star teams, 12 All-Defensive teams. Yeah, Tamika catching. <laughs> put her in your damn headline.
2: Burn. 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 Amira, what do you want to torch?
4: Yeah, I'm really mad about this. This is um, I want to talk about boxer Billy Joe Saunders, who is awful. And so this week, uh, he decided to make a video that features him in a punching bag, and he says, "You know, folks, this is a video that I want to make for you, um, because you're because of coronavirus, just you're, you're at home, and if you're old woman or you're, you know." girlfriend is giving you too much lip and getting you on your, uh is giving you mouth, he says, and getting <sighs> on your nerves, this is what you should do. So he uses a punching bag to demonstrate oh what God. you should do if she's coming at you and using her mouth and getting annoying. And then he hits the bag and he's a boxer. He hits the bag very hard. And he says, you would hit her right there on the chin. And he goes on in this video to say, and then you might give her this combination, whatever. He's literally making a how-to domestic violence video. This is egregious anytime, but especially right now, in a moment where not everybody, we're sheltering at home, we're in place, we're staying at home, but not everybody is safe at home. And this, we've seen a spike in domestic abuse Things in China as, as people have been sheltering here, we're seeing them on the rise here as children and people are home in houses that have underlying tensions, that have history of abuse. And I do want to pause my burn right here just to say and remind everybody who's listening that there is 24 seven access to domestic violence advocates at the national hotline. That's 1 800 799 safe. If you're deaf or hard of hearing, you can also call the National Deaf Video Phone at 855-812-1001. There's advocates there. There's people there to help anybody get resources they need. They also have a live chat service um, because sometimes it's really hard to make those calls. We actually have seen calls to the hotline plummet since it's harder for people to make calls when everybody's in the home. Um, And so this is this is the moment that he determined that he determined it was right to put out this stupid-ass video. Now, the British Boxing are Thankfully, the Board of Control suspended his license. People like Clarissa Shields retweeted his video and said, you know what, actually, this is dumb. Let me make a video to show you what to do to survive abuse. She made a tutorial for women in abusive relationships. But the last part of this is his apology, of course, because this is something we're all familiar with. He apologized in a way too long tweet that didn't actually offer an apology at all. (laughs) It talked about the hate mail he got and he said, listen, this was a joke and I didn't realize people wouldn't find it funny. Also, I have a daughter and if anyone did that to my daughter, I would hurt them bad. I didn't mean for anyone to get upset about it. People are dying all around the world with coronavirus and I was just trying to take the heat off that a little bit and provide a laugh. It clearly hasn't done. He's British it clearly hasn't done my sense of humor is not everyone's cup of tea. What asinine bullshit there was nothing funny about it. it wasn't even like and the the amount of men defending him was repulsive. This was just bare bones here 's how to abuse people. It was stupid, it was harmful it was your apology was insufficient, not even close to being acceptable. All of it is trash. Burn it down. Burn. Burn.
2: All right, Shireen, bring us home. Yeah. So
3: I saw something. I tried to take a couple minutes to lose myself in Jane Austen, movie films, pride and prejudice, whatnot. And I got off and I was off Twitter for like maybe an hour and a half. while. Well, God damn! Did the world just keep burning in a towering inferno of racism? Keandre Miller is a 20-year-old New York Rangers prospect. He's a you know an amazing young hockey player. So he, out of the goodness of his heart, in this particularly in this time, decided to do a Q and A on Zoom live with somebody from the organization, answering questions about his career, what he's looking forward to, et cetera, et cetera. This was what the phenomenon we know as Zoom bombing, quote unquote, happened to him. And it was peppered with the N word and a slew of racialized insults as this young man is talking. Now, there's a couple tears to this burn. Of course, first and foremost, I'm so furious. I'm so angry that this happened and very concerned for him and hoping he has the supports he needs to navigate this. But there's other part, he looked quite shocked. There's a video of him. Now that's another part. There's a video of someone circulating on Twitter that's showing that screen scroll through. And this is very jarring for people to see that Word being shared again and again and again. And friend of the show, Renee Haas over at Black Girls Hockey Club tweeted out, like, stop sharing that because it re-traumatizes people. Now that's another layer of this For Another layer which was really frustrating for me to see was the slew of people who are white who were complimenting him on the quote unquote classy way he handled it. Okay, well, first of all. First of all, you don't fucking get to decide how a racialized person handles it and you don't give them an evaluation of what you think is classy. To me, he looked numb. He looked really shocked. He decided in that moment to ignore that and kept going with so much, like he was so courageous of him just to keep talking and to normalize the situation and the woman interviewing him. It's almost like she didn't realize it was happening. Another layer of this bullshit. It took the New York Rangers three hours to tweet and comment about this. Three hours. I'm sorry, Rangers, not a whole lot of hockey happening right now. What the fuck were you doing for that long? The NHL followed sweet. I mean, immediately you had JT Brown, the Minnesota Wilds hockey player come out and talk about how it's garbage. But I think there's so many, there's so many ways in which people still refuse to use the word racism. It's so hard organizations to say racism people are still so concerned with not being labeled or complicit in racism that they're more worried about that than the actual system of oppression i want to burn all of this all of it because it's unacceptable it's infuriating and it's triggering for so many people out there so just burn. burn
2: After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First up, our honorable mentions. Amani McGee-Stafford, former Burn It All Down guest and a center for the WNBA's Dallas Wings, announced this week that she is taking a two-year hiatus from the WNBA to go to law school. Congrats, Attorney McGee-Stafford. Ingrid Engen. VFL Wolfsburg star and Norwegian national team player has asked that 10% of her salary be donated to helping those affected by the pandemic. It's part of a hashtag social responsibility campaign. We want to give a shout out to the athletes on the Forbes 2020 30 under 30 Asia list, including Nor Phoenix Diana, Malaysia's first job wearing female pro wrestler, Hayori Khan, a professional sumo wrestler banned from the sport because she is a woman, Khan is featured in the documentary Little Miss Sumo, which you can find on Netflix. Ash Barty, indigenous Australian tennis player who won the French Open last year. And Seon Kim, the South Korean Overwatch legend. Telegraph Women's Sport has been awarded the Reporting Diversity Award and Supplement of the Year by the Society of Editors in the UK. Congrats to Anna Kessel and her team at the Telegraph. No surprise here, Sabrina Inescu is the Naismith Player of the Year. Also, shout out to the other finalists, Lauren Cox at Baylor, Taisha Harris at South Carolina, and Ryan Howard at Kentucky. Lex's old roommate, Amira's girl, Dee Dee Richards, was named the Defensive Player of the Year, beating out the other talented finalists, Aliyah Boston in, at South Carolina, Ari McDonald at Arizona, and Kylie Shook at Louisville. And lastly, Dawn Staley matches her AP Coach of the Year honor from last week with the Naismith Coach of the Year Award this week. She makes history, becoming the first person to win the Naismith Coach Award after also winning the Naismith Player of the Year Award, which she won as a star at Virginia in 1991 and 92. Shout out to the other coaching finalists, Kelly Graves, who of course had a tremendous year with Oregon, and Adia Barnes from Arizona, who helmed a special team this year. Our special episode that dropped last week features an interview with Arizona player Amari Carter, who details more about their special season. And finally, the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame announced their class of 2020, included our three-time NCAA National Championship coach at Baylor, Kim Mulkey, and five-time Division II National Coach of the Year, Barbara Stevens. Can I get a drum roll, please? Our badass woman of the week is Tamika Ketchings the only female basketball player to be a part of the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame's class of 2020. Lindsay already gave you a pretty good rundown of Catching's career. I'm just going to mention a few things again, 10 time WNBA all-star named to the all WNBA team 12 times in her career, four time Olympic gold medalist. She was a 2011 WNBA MVP and led the Indiana fever to the 2012 WNBA championship, earning finals MVP honors that year. While at the University of Tennessee, she won a national championship, she's currently the VP of Basketball Operations and General Manager of the Indiana Fever. Catchings absolutely deserves a spot among the greats, and we are so happy she got it. Congratulations, Tamika Catchings, our badass woman of the week. Okay, what's good, y'all? Brenda, what's good with you? My middle daughter is turning 11, Luna. Luna.
0: Oh, and um, happy birthday, Luna. Yeah. And my birthday is the day after. And I just couldn't imagine a better birthday present. And when you have a girl that's good, it just like COVID is 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 like, can, can she not have a roller skating party? Okay, that kind of sucks. But like the appreciation I have for her and the fact that we're healthy and the fact that we can be together is is like monumental. So it's really cheering me up right now to like plan little surprises. About 20 of her friends are going to socially distance on the lawn and sing her happy birthday as a surprise. So, shh. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, doing things like, you know, finding like the right stuff for a cake and stuff like that has kept me busy in a positive way. Also, the check-ins can be fatiguing, but the check-ins are life-sustaining right now. So thanking all my friends and family and Bayad in particular, co-host too, for keeping keeping me sane and and happy-ish.
2: I agree. I was going to say, burn it all down. You all are making this much better than it otherwise would be. The other thing I was going to mention this time, uh, my trainer, Amalia at Grass Iron, I, as I've said, I d- deeply miss going to the gym that's been... Personally, one of the hardest things for me. It's so important for my mental health as well as my physical. And so this week, Amalia and the other trainers there have started doing virtual training. So like, I had to clear out all the space in the living room. I had to put Ralph in a room because, as if you saw the Patreon video that I did, um, he will like sit on me if I if I'm anywhere near the ground. (laughs) Um, So I had to put him in another room, and we Facetimed, and for an hour, I. Did body weight workout. I'm sore today, but it was just really lovely to have that time to chat with Amalia, which I'm really used to. She's like my bartender slash therapist or something. But also to actually just do that physical work again was was really lovely, and I'm I'm glad that that's an option and something that I get to do um, in this moment, Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, just. Every person in my life (laughs) who checks in and
1: is supportive and loving and, you know, I'd like to just thank everyone giving anybody else some grace and some empathy and some, you know... give everybody a little slack right now. <laughs> and I've gotten some from a lot of people I know and love. I've tried to get – I had a thing with a customer service represent representative and, and um, I really talked myself out of going nuts and didn't just let it happen. You know, my mom – the flowers for my mom's birthday were delivered five days late and it was fine. You know what I mean? Like it was just like – I was just like everyone's just doing the best they can right now. So I just want to thank uh, everyone who's giving grace. And last night I had a really nice time. My little uh, – So – Usually my family, my mom and my aunt and my cousin and his daughter, they do like a Friday night dinner every week. And, um, you know, whenever I'm in Greensboro, I will join. But obviously that you know, um when I'm in D.C., I know they're happening, but I can't go. But obviously, nobody's doing the dinners now because of social distancing. So last night, we all got on Zoom, and my little five-year-old cousin gave us all, like, a fancy dinner party. Like, they brought out Aww. their nice china, <laughs> and then we played a no. board game via Zoom, and I won. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> it but anyways, it was just – it was one of those things where it was like, yes, everything is horrible right now. No, I, you know – I I don't really super believe in silver linings, but I did appreciate that a a night like that probably wouldn't have happened. You know, I wouldn't have thought to be creative and to zoom in for the dinner um, under normal circumstances. So I think, you know, that was good.
2: That's nice. Amira. Amira.
4: I echo a lot of what Lindsay said, but uh, in this week I particularly want to shout out uh, Courtney Cox, friend of the show. We've had her on before, um, who's also my accountability partner, and we have lovely check-ins um, and happy hours. Especially because I'm trying to hit a place where I'm orienting back to figure out how to, like, you know, write a book or a finished book. And she's been really key in like helping me recenter and refocus on on work. And so I wanted to shout her out. And I'm also really, really, really excited because has agreed to let me shepherd her through a rewatch of <laughs> Avatar The Last Airbender. This is so essential. I'm I can't wait. Um, in preparation, I <laughs> may have watched half of the first season already. Um, (laughs) I watched reaction videos because I love people watching it for the first time. I'm just so thrilled. Anyways, that will commence very shortly. Um, And also, of course, I wanted to send a happy pre-birthday, almost birthday shout out to our own Brenda because it's it's your birthday week and it's exciting. And as much love as you're giving to Luna, we want to give to you. So happy, happy, happy birthday, Brenda.
2: Hey, uh, and Shireen. Well, we did house party.
4: For those of you that saw our social media,
3: we actually all downloaded the app House Party, and Amira led us through trivia, and she's amazingly good. No surprise, I'm sure she has trophies. Self-bought, obviously. Um, I do, I do, I do want to add the Prenda tied Thank with her you. for one of the categories, and I want it Pictionary. So I just want to get that out there. And you know, we're we're, we're prepping for the in when when all this is over god willing we will meet and i have portable tablets for pictionary that i'm going to bring and we will play so we're well i just wanted to get them warmed up um i that whole online and checking in with people is great i just want to send some love to those that get exhausted by that um i'm not one of those people but there are those out there that that really want that time and i see you and i hear you um i um it's been a couple it's been a sort of challenging week for me. My kids are with their father. And so it's just been me trying to Occupy myself. Watch everything. I watched Tiger King, and I hate everything about it. I couldn't stop watching. Doctor Courtney Sito, friend of the show, and uh, Doctor Shwana Xavier both really were encouraging me to watch it. I'm like, I hate everything. And it's what Trevanua said. It's what white when white people don't have black friends. That's what Tiger King is, and I just (laughs) couldn't stop laughing when I heard that. Um, (laughs) Lastly, Lastly, I want to say happy, happy, happy pre birthday. To Brenda, to Luna, to Brenda. April 8th is a very important day because it was a day that Brenda, Dr. Brenda Elsie, came into the world. Bran, you are a joy and a blessing. And I love you so, so dearly and wish you so much happiness. I wish I could come and visit you, but the borders are closed and I can't. Also, COVID. So I just hope you amass. I know you don't love your birthday, but I want you to understand that I desperately love your birthday because it means that you're here. Exactly.
4: She's so uncomfortable. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, no. no. No, I'm coming around.
0: I'm coming around. If it makes you happy, it's going to make me happy too.
4: Oh my God. Look what we've done in three months. I, wow. I know. It only took a 153 episodes
0: <laughs> is what it took.
2: 153 episodes. <laughs> um,
3: Bitches I'm, be labor and work. <laughs> I know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I am just going to mention one other thing for people. If you haven't seen Jake Gyllenhaal doing a handstand and put on a T-shirt, I just want you all to stop and Google that. That'll make you happy.
1: Why did we not start with that? I know, I'm
2: sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. If you subscribe, you'll never miss an episode or any extra content like our athlete-focused interview episode about the coronavirus that dropped last week. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. And remember, the experts say to be physically distant, not socially distant. Get in touch with us. You can email us from our site to give us feedback. We would love hearing from you all. You can also find Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoyed this week's show, do me a favor. Share it with two people in your life whom you think would be interested in the program. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. You'll have plenty of time to do this right now. The ratings really do help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. If you're interested in Burn It All Down, merchandise, pillows, hoodies, t-shirts, tote bags, those kind of things, check out our Teespring store. Now might be a good time to curl up with a burn-it-all-down blanket. Once more, thank you to our patrons. We could not do this without you. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to burn-it-all-down at patreon.com slash burn-it-all-down. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash burn-it-all-down. That's it for burn-it-all-down. We hope you all have a safe and healthy week. Burn on, not out.